welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History, in association with the Institute of Historical Research. And it's the first podcast of 2021, and we've had a bit of a reboot. We've got a new logo, which has been designed by Lisa Taylor. Um, we've got a new schedule, so we'll be doing regular podcasts every two weeks, rather than kind of whenever I get around to editing them. And we've got a new hosting service, which is SoundCloud, and the podcast is now embedded on the BSSH, web, BSSH website, which you can find at sportsinhistory.org. And our first guest of 2021 is Katie Taylor, who will be giving a paper as part of the Society's Sport and Leisure Seminar Series later in the year. Hi, Katie. Hello. <laughs> good to be here. Oh, good. And for the foreseeable future, seminars will take place on Zoom. And of course, all of our interviews are going to take place on Zoom as well. Um, you can find the details of the seminars on the BSSH website and the website of the IHR, which is history.ac.uk. As well as Katie, we have a diverse range of speakers uh, who will be talking about subjects uh, from wheelchair sport to transgender sports people in the 1930s and swimming history in the 19th century. But first up on the 18th of January will be previous podcast guest Alistair Webb talking about the history of the Cricket World Cup. And as I said, if you want to find out more about those seminars, all the details can be found on the IHR's website. But back to the today. My guest today is Kate Taylor, who is currently a doctoral student at the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University. And she focuses on the history of female American football players. She is also a teacher at Peter Simmons Sixth Form College in Winchester, where she specialises in the social cultural aspects of sport. Katie is a qualified American football coach and previously managed the Great Britain men's flag football team. Now, of course, I want to concentrate on your historical work today, uh, Katie. But first question, what is flag football? Yeah, so um, like you say, I'm a qualified coach in both flag and contact, but flag is the one that I coach the most. Um, and it's basically, it's a, it's a non-contact version of the sport. Um, players use tags for tackling, so it's a little like tag rugby, oh, okay. uh, or very like tag rugby in that, in that respect. Um, but it's great because it's played on a smaller pitch. Um, it relies on speed and agility rather than kind of brute force. So it's actually really good for players to play a bit of flag because it helps them with that part of their game. Uh, it's played at five-a-side. Um, we have junior and senior leagues right across the country. Um, it's played at international level and it's five-a-side at international level as well. Um, and there's usually European and world championships every two years. So, yeah, every couple of years there's a European or Worlds. Um, and basically, I've been coaching it at the college where I teach since about 2008, I think. Um, and from that, yeah, I got involved with the, the Great Britain team and I, I managed them at two European championships. So it's largely the administrative side making sure the team were where they should be at the right time and um, organising training camps, things like that. Um, but yeah, I was the only female member of the squads, which was uh, certainly interesting at times. Um, but we part of the reason for that is we didn't have a female team uh, at, the, at that point. So I was trying to get one started. But, um, but yeah, so I, I looked after the, the male team for a couple of European championships. And so you really travelled around, around the world um, in that role? Well, yeah, so the first Europeans that I went to was um, in Belfast. So that wasn't quite as, as far away from home. And then we went to France for one um, 
uh, on the on the shores of Lake Geneva, actually. So it's kind of on that the, the border, and then another one in Italy. But I never got to go to the World Championships um, because they, we weren't given the funding to go to World Championships, um, so I missed out because um, the whole squad didn't go. So that was a bit of a downside, but it was still great fun. It's yeah. Still, still good. Yesterday, I, I read um, your article, um, which has appeared in the uh, sort of the latest edition of Sport and History, and uh, it was a really interesting article. It sort of examines the early history of women's participation in American football. Um, and I, I was just so surprised about you know quite this long history of women playing the game, virtually back to kind of the invention of uh, American football in the eighteen seventies. How recently did historians even acknowledge that women? Uh, played the game in the 19th century? Um, I would say that I'm probably, as far as I'm aware, probably the first to kind of start kind of making this point, I suppose. Um, so I started this as part of my MA research. So when I was doing my MA dissertation, this is where kind of I, I got started on this. And um, yeah, as far as I'm aware, I'm the first to write about it. I, I presented some of the information actually back at BSSH in the annual conference in 2015. Mm -hmm. And then I did a similar presentation at NASH in 2016 at their annual conference. Um, and certainly at NASH, you know, academics were quite surprised to hear about, about the history. Um, some people have written a little tiny bit. So Brian Bunker has written a little bit about association football in San Francisco. So he was aware of the American Football League in 1897, but he's not actually written or published anything about it. Um, Though I, I chatted to him at the uh, Gary James Football Conference um, about it. Um, and about a year or so ago, there was a book published on American football. Uh, and there was, a, there was a chapter, I'll say a very brief chapter, about the history of women playing the sport. And again, that didn't really even touch on the 1890s. Um, and when I posted, I actually posted a link uh, from the, of the Sport and History article to the Nash Facebook page. And people were like, oh, I didn't have any idea that women played so early. Um, and I know a few academics have actually started to use the, the article for teaching purposes. So which I think probably emphasises that what I'm doing is probably the first time that people are properly acknowledging that there were some serious attempts by women to play American football um, back in the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, it, it shouldn't be surprising, but I guess American football out of all sports, maybe... Um, it, except for rugby is has or, or cage fighting or something like that but it has this hyper masculine kind of image um and in the in the article you do talk about that but you also talk about the way in which kind of women wanted to play the game but maybe adapted it i mean can you talk about the way that they kind of adapted the game when they took it up yes you're absolutely right i mean American football is absolutely about masculinity. You know, it was the site to prove masculinity. So the, the frontier had, had been conquered. There, was, there wasn't that site to kind of go and, and men to go and prove themselves. Um, young men didn't have the civil war now to go and prove their masculinity. So football, which emerged at the same time, was the ultimate kind of, that was the space to kind of do that. So, you know, women kind of were fighting those ideas. And one of the most common ways that they would... Uh, they would kind of adapt the sport was to try and reduce the violent aspects so things like reducing tackling which which really was one of the most violent parts of the game um and you see it in the article sometimes it's really explicit in the articles so they'll actually say that they tagged each other rather than tackled each other um in other cases you kind of read through the 
lines to kind of work out. So if a report mentions that women were wearing sweaters or they don't mention that there are any pads or helmets, suggests that the women have done something to the game to, to reduce some of the violence. But then uh, magazines like the National Police Gazette, their images would have you believe that women played basically in lingerie, but you know that, that absolutely didn't happen. Um, but women also did things like reduce the length of games because they were aware that playing for the same length of time wasn't necessarily appropriate. Um, they would play on smaller pitches, just any space that they could find sometimes. And a lot of times they, they played in secret um, because the playing in front of male, male spectators especially was just not at all appropriate. Um, so a lot of women kind of tried to play in secret to, um, to hide from male eyes and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, I was, really, I was really interested in the way that like women playing sport and women playing American football especially was seen as part of the phenomenon of the new woman at the end of the 19th century as well. Because I think this is something, I mean, I've, I've written in a minor way about this um, in France and I'm really interested in that. And like, how much was it like a class bound thing? Was it a middle class thing where it was a way for middle class women to express a kind of a new way of being feminine or a new way of being a woman yeah so what's what always surprised me about the research that i found is a lot of the the women who were playing were from uh, were in colleges and high schools and high schools at the time weren't like they are now you know they were for for the um for the elite so these are women from the higher class in society deciding that for some reason they wanted to have a have a go at um a sport that everyone would tell them was not was not appropriate for them the problem it's obviously hard to find out their motivations for it because newspaper reports didn't really have the female voice in there you know especially since the women were playing in secret so trying to find out why they wanted to play was quite difficult um some articles mentioned that they were just simply bored of games like basketball that just they weren't strenuous enough for them um but that lack of the actual participants voices in newspaper articles makes it quite difficult to work out why they wanted to do it in the first place. Certainly the working class women were doing it for money. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. San Francisco, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's difficult to establish sometimes why why other women wanted to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, can you talk some more about the kind of the West Coast football? Because the uh, that, that was really interesting to me as well. So you have these kind of middle class kind of women in education who are taking it up, but then you have this other other form of the game, which kind of seems like a hybrid of sort of sport and kind of show business I don't know is that is that how how you feel about it I mean maybe you can talk yeah. through the, the 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 story of that yeah so the the um the league that emerged in San Francisco in 1897 um it's clearly an entrepreneurial attempt to make some cash there's, there's no doubt about it um I, the reports mentioned they want it to be the first match of the Pacific Coast Ladies League I think they called it um, and it kind of fits with what was happening in San Francisco. So Brian Bunk basically states that um, in 1893, that's where the first documented women's soccer match happened. So there is a thing going on in that area about um, trying to commercialise women playing sport to a certain extent. Um, and these were women from basically from entertainment industry, from ballet and things like that, who were taking part in, um, and being paid and the fact that they timed it for Christmas Day, New Year's Day, you know, it was definitely uh, put on at the holiday times, get some spectators in, charge them some money um, and try and make some cash from it. Um, and they played a couple of games, um, but 
then all reports of it kind of disappear and you don't really know. It obviously, it seems that there was a lack of interest. Certainly the prices for the second game went, went down, which suggests that they weren't attracting as many people as they thought. Um, so the whole thing kind of just fizzled out. And it's not really till the 1930s that you get women playing in kind of league format uh, again. And in your article, you kind of compare your research with um, Raph Nicholson's work on cricket and Jean Williams' work on football in in the in Britain in the UK, um, and it, and the early kind of the early teams uh, in those sports over here. So, is there a similarity between what's happening in America and what's happening in the UK at that time? Is it kind of why 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 is this happening at this time is kind of what i'm trying to think through i suppose um so i think obviously what's happening in the us is a lot to do with the new woman like like you mentioned you know this this idea that that women are kind of coming out a little bit from uh from the home um i mean i haven't looked much at britain because i've kept it obviously it's a very um it's a very a US-based study. And part of the reason for talking about Raf and Jean's work in the, the article is that the nature of the um, nature of the journal. Mm. Um, I mean, it's not just in American football that you see these sorts of things happening with with all the way that the women are represented. So you also see very similar things happening in women's baseball in the US at the same time. I mean, that's another sport that's associated with Amer- American militarism, that sort of thing. You know, Albert Spalding said that baseball is war. Um, and you see a lot of similarities in terms of the reaction from the media. So the female baseball players had a um, very similar reaction or had a similar reaction to the um, response from the media like the football players did. And, and like that, there was also a class divide. So your female baseball players from the higher classes were accepted by the media. They were seen as playing for fun. Um, so they weren't really a threat to the male game. Um, so the media reports weren't quite as derogatory, but the the working class baseball female baseball players received vitriolic abuse in the in the press. Um, in football, they it wasn't quite as negative, but it was slightly negative. But I think that's partly due to the fact that there just weren't as many women playing football as there were playing baseball. Um, so they weren't really a threat to the male game in the same way that. Um, that the female baseball players might have been viewed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's all, it's a time when women are gaining more physical op- opportunities um, to take part in sport. Um, and the new woman, I suppose, is, is, is a big part of that. Um, women it, just want to get out there and try different things that perhaps they've been restricted from doing in the past. Yeah. Um, and you, you'll be talking about another aspect of um, women's American football in your paper for the IHR seminar, which is uh, coming up in March, I think it is. Um, can you give us a preview of that? What will you be talking about then? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to be talking about basically the history of female coaches um, that I'm talking about. And it's a really, really topical area at the moment. Um, there are more and more female coaches now being hired in the NFL. Um, the playoffs actually start this weekend, go Indianapolis. <laughs> um, we're going to get beaten I'm sure. <laughs> anyway um but in the playoffs there are actually going to be six women on teams that have made the playoffs um which is really exciting and, and one match um between washington and tampa bay we'll see female coaches on both teams um 
So that's really exciting. So it's a really topical thing that's getting a lot of press coverage in the in the US, the, the rise of female coaches. But the problem is, um, as recently as September last year, Sam Rappaport, and she is doing phenomenal work. She's the NFL Director of Football Development. And it's essentially her role to increase women's opportunities in within the NFL. And she's been doing great work. But she tweeted uh, last September that Natalie Randolph was the first woman to be a head coach of a high school football team. And that was in 2010. Um, but women have actually been coaching the sport since the 1890s in various capacities. Um, and the problem of like saying that people like Randolph were the first is it kind of gives this impression that they're a novelty, that there's something new about it. Um, so what I want to really do with the seminar is is introduce the kind of pioneering women who've coached the sport up through the early years, right through to the uh, kind of post-World War II era, and kind of start to change that narrative about the history of female football coaches. And I think that I was a female football coach myself, um, knowing that there's been a lot of women that have come first makes it feel a little bit less like an oddity, because sometimes yeah. you do feel like the, the odd person. Um, and maybe inspire more women to become coaches because they are part of a long history. This isn't a recent thing. It's, it's a much longer history. That's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that. And um, you, your whole PhD, you just finished your PhD, you told me. So your whole PhD is about the history of American football, women in American football, isn't it? So, um, you know, what, what first inspired you to get into researching the history of the game? Obviously, you were involved um, on a coaching side. Uh, what 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 flipped you into turning it into an academic study? So I did my masters at De Montfort as well. Um, I did it part time, like my PhD, which is very close to uh, hopefully being over. Um, <laughs> but I remember when because it took me two years to do my MA because it was it was spread over two years, and I remember talking to someone in the first year when I was doing it. Um, she was like, oh, we should do something on women's sport when you get to the second year and you end up doing your dissertation. Um, so I started kind of researching it. And I remember starting the MA dissertation thinking, oh, I'll look at women playing it because there won't be very many. I'll look at cheerleaders. I'll look at spectators. I'll cover all this sort of stuff. And the more I looked into it, I was like, OK, I'm going to have to write the whole thing just about women playing it. Um, because I wasn't aware that there was you know, no one had written anything about women playing very much so I was like I was surprised to find out there was that much there so then that piece of work became about women playing it and then it was apparent that there was going to be more than enough um, to then turn or use that as a basis to then um, do the PhD on that as well um, so yeah I can't remember why I thought it was a good idea but I think it was a, it was a book by Michael Oriard called King Football. And in that, he talks a little about women playing the sport, um, more so in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. That's the kind of era that his book covers. So I was like, oh, there might be something on it. And then um, it turns out there was a lot on it. And, uh, <laughs> and then I was just taking me down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, when you find that and you, and you look around and look at the secondary literature and then you think, oh wait a minute I'm, I'm the only one who's doing this yeah. it's wonderful um yeah. the women coaches that's not even part of the actual kind of thesis um that was just something that you know what it's like when you start researching you you find stuff and you think well that's important but it's not relevant to what I'm doing now 
Um, so I'll save it. So I'll keep it somewhere. And at, at some point, it might be useful for something else. Um, so yeah, future book, that sort of thing. It'll, it's all. As part of your research, did you go over to the States? Were you using archives over there? Can you tell us a bit about Yeah, so, so the, fir the first trip I took, so at the start, the way I kind of had to work everything was just try and find as much information as I could. So the first thing I did is I went to the Library of Congress. Hmm. Um, so I went over there and accessed as many digitised newspapers as I could. Um, and yeah, just found more and more articles. So then I had to go home and work out what might make a sensible research trip. Um, and it's, so then I, the women, the women's colleges, um, they start, physical educators started using the sport, the touch version of the sport uh, for their students. And that's not in any of the, um, the books about women's physical education. So I thought, well, maybe that's a good place to go. So I, trawled through their digital archives and I was like okay so Radcliffe and Vassar were definitely um playing it more than anywhere else then I went to um I had a research trip over to uh the US and I started in Boston and went to uh, Radcliffe's archives on the Harvard campus then I drove to Poughkeepsie to go and visit Vassar's archives um so that was what that was one trip and then there was another one where I just couldn't get hold of uh, digitized version of the Toledo Blades and I really needed it for something on the Women's League in Toledo in the 1930s so I went to uh, I went to Ohio to go and do some research there I did a little bit of research in Detroit um, and then on that trip I started in Detroit went to went to Bowling Green Ohio and then I flew to LA to try and um, find some stuff at UCLA in their archives as well so I've tried to combine try and keep have little trips or have longer trips but less of them really yeah. and being a teacher I had time off in the summer where I could just go over there and spend a couple of weeks doing bits and pieces so uh, three research trips to the US. Yeah and I mean you've been writing up uh, during uh, 2020 so it's a tough year for teachers certainly uh, oh. on a professional level but then also doing your writing up at the same time I mean how did how did you manage to do that during the pandemic? Was it useful in a way that you you were locked in the in the house for a lot of time? Or yeah, I mean, I don't recommend trying to finish a thesis during a pandemic at all. Um, and I think I've coped fairly well. My husband might disagree. There's certainly been tears, but I think that's that's normal. I think that's normal when you're finishing a PhD, regardless of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that the research phase was done, so I didn't need to do any of that. Um, there were issues because I don't live close to De Montfort. As soon as Scone access stopped, I couldn't even access the local libraries here. So it's things like having to buy secondhand books for little bits of research at the end that was uh, that was difficult. And yeah, really stressful time, not just for me but for supervisors as well. You know, they're they're struggling with everything else. Um, and you're right, I was we went in March from very quickly having to teach online. So I was trying to learn new technologies, write at the same time, support my students in the best way that I possibly could. So once teaching finished in July, things got a little bit easier, but it was simple. It was things like making sure I got exercise every day, you know, recognizing that I stopped working at weekends, things like that, acknowledging that, that my mental health was really important because if I, if that kind of got worse, then I wouldn't be able to write, wouldn't be able to do anything. So I tried to tell myself it didn't matter if things took a little bit longer. What was important was 
staying healthy, trying to keep anxiety to a, to a minimum um, and things like that, really, because you can't, it was difficult because you can't work out if your anxiety and stress is a PhD thing or if it's a pandemic thing. Um, but it's a combination of everything, I think. So giving myself a break and, and taking rest and getting exercise and I would make Saturday like a fun day so you do something nice as much as you possibly could. Um, so it's things like, things like that really I think that's really good advice obviously pandemic is an extreme circumstance but I think just generally for people who are doing PhDs or research projects is to say to yourself it's all right to have a break (laughs) you know don't feel guilty about taking a break and 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 it's definitely necessary because you can get obsessed with things and you can feel like you know you've got to plow every waking moment into it but that's not good for anybody I don't think that's really easy that is really easy to do when you're locked at home to think if I'm at home then I should be working Mm. um so yeah just making sure I would finish work at a certain time I was like right and let's go out and go for a walk for an hour or I'm definitely not going to work at the weekends and things like that because just recovering from the week was (laughs) was important enough really yeah and you've just taken on the role of uh, postgraduate and early career uh rep with uh the bssh you come onto the uh committee um what are you going to do with that role have you have you had the time to do anything so far what's going on there so yeah it's really when i joined i always wanted to basically give something back to bssh once i was a little less busy um so joining the board was i was i was really excited to do that and obviously i didn't initially know what my role would be but um, the ECR and postgrad role is, is kind of perfect, I suppose, in a way. Um, so I'm there to represent um, those members in any way possible. Um, and obviously, first-hand experience, I know what it's like at the moment to be in that situation as a as a postgrad student. So um, what I've started to try and do is basically try and find out how we can support those members um, as best as possible. So I've been sending out emails. Um, just a couple of emails to those we've got contact details for um, just to try and find out if there are any ways that we can support them, maybe help promote their work. Um, I've been looking at um, other organisations and what they do for postgrad and ECR members um, and trying to see if our members think that similar ideas might work, um, work with them. Part of the thing is knowing entirely who the ECR and postgrad members are yeah. Um, so if anyone who's listening is an ECR or postgrad member and has not heard from me in an email, it means that I don't, we don't have you listed as an ECR or postgrad member. Um, so if that is the case, then obviously feel free to drop me an email. Uh, my email address is on the website. I would love to hear from anyone. And, um, you know, I'm there, I'm there to represent. I don't want to force my ideas. I want to know what people would, would like and how they think we could help. So just get in touch and um, I'll put it to the board for them. Yeah, and one of the really important things that BSSH does is that we have grants available, don't we, for postgrads and ETRs uh, who are for research projects and things like that, don't we? So, yeah, if we don't if we don't know that that our members are um, postgrads or ECRs, then it's really important that they self-identify, isn't it, so that we yeah. can we can channel this this money towards them and and get fantastic research out there um just like uh just like your research um and as i said i really enjoyed reading the article and um that article is available online if you if uh, people go to the taylor and francis website and 
tap in sporting history it'll come up um and i just want to say thanks a lot katie it was a really good chat um and uh also if you want to catch her katie's paper on natalie randolph and female american football coaches she'll presenting be presenting that on zoom on the 15th of march so do put that in your diaries or catch up with it afterwards on the bssh's youtube channel we'll be posting all of our seminars on there um, from 2021 onwards uh, but for today that's that's all from both of us so goodbye Bye.